Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP support review podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young. This week, we have a special guest. I'd like to introduce Dr. Michael Park, who's going to be the rising chief resident at Yale. So he's person that chose to replace me after they kick me out. And he will be presenting an excellent case that he presented to our department recently that I thought would be a shame not to share with the rest of us. How are you doing, Michael? How are you doing today? We actually just came from the OR together. So and then rushed here to make sure we got this done before other meetings late in the day. Thanks Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. Michael, just so people can get to know you a bit, can you tell us where you're from and why you decided to do ophthalmology? Sure. So I'm from New Jersey. I went to medical school at Tufts and now I'm at Yale. The reason I chose ophthalmology is it's a pretty generic reason, but it's a, it's, it's a very true one. And it really just was a patient who had a cataract. It was about a 2400 cataract that was removed and I got to see them on post-op day one. And they were actually 2020 on their post-op day one. And just seeing them, seeing how happy they were, it was like, nothing else that I've seen before in medicine. And that's, that's when I knew. Okay. So without further ado, take it away, Michael, what case did you see? Yeah. So, uh, this was a case that I had seen on call, um, as a second year, it was basically maybe around 10 PM at night. And I got this call from a patient. He's this 36 year old guy who said that this left eye pain has been really kind of picking up for the last four days. He described it as a dull ache behind his eye, almost like a headache kind of sensation. And he had some blurred vision and some light sensitivity associated with it and didn't have any trauma or anything that preceded it. It just came out of the blue, but it just would not go away. So he he called the the eye center and, and asked if someone could see him. And interestingly, when I spoke with him over the phone, he did say that he had a few similar episodes in the last few years. And each episode lasted sometimes a few days, other times it would last a few weeks, and usually it would just go away and self-resolve on its own. But this time his pain was kind of getting a little bit too tough for him to bear, so he decided to finally call. And um, of note, he did say that he had a, a few eye exams in these episodes, and they've all basically told him that his eyes look pretty much normal. So uh, he was he was pretty puzzled about this. So am I. So um, can you tell us a little bit about his exam when you did see him? Yeah, so, so I, I saw him and, and um, his, his vision was actually quite good. It was 20-20 in the right eye and 20-25 in the left eye, which mm-hmm. was the eye that was affected. And his pupils were brisk, reactive, um, four to two in each eye, and there was no relative afferent pupillary defect. And um, his confrontational visual fields were full. Extraocular motility was full, and his color plates even were full in both eyes. But I did check his eye pressure, and his pressure was 18 in the right and 51 on the left. So, of course, at this point, I mean, just uh, asking a question to you, what's, what's one thing that you think uh, would be important for me to do in my exam? Yeah, I know. I mean, uh, I don't know much about glaucoma, but I know 51 is too high. You know, if... They could tolerate it. I think a gonio is is something that it would do. Exactly. So we did exactly that. And on gonioscopy, uh, his right eye was unremarkable. It was open to a grade three. Um, I could see scleral spur and some trace pigments, 360 without any neovascularization or PAS. And I did it for the left eye. And, and interestingly, 
the exam was exactly the same. So he was actually open. Okay. He was open to scleral spur, and there wasn't any neovascularization or any PAS. Interesting. And just to clarify, I'm sure you did the rest of a 20-point exam like we reviewed in a previous episode, but um, I'm sure that we're presenting only these parts now to keep things zesty, the differential. Right. So yeah. we'll definitely talk about the slit lamp exam in greater detail, but without giving too much of it away at this point, I mean, what are some of the things that you think are, are thinking about when you're seeing this patient on call? Yeah. And summarize again, what I'm, what the differential I'm thinking of is just like what we have so far. Yeah. Like, just kind of a, a general idea of what are the main things that you think could cause elevated IOP to maybe about 50 but have a completely open angle on gonioscopy. Yeah, I don't have a specific thought for this patient yet. Um, I think, you know, we we talk about on this um, on the podcast trying to do a systems based approach. So, you know, I like the vitamin C mnemonic to go through each system to so that you you cover all your bases. So, you using that system, um, V. Oh my God! Did you just crick your neck? That was Sorry. incredible. No, that, <laughs> that was a little know, louder than do, I expected. Doing that may cause um, <laughs> some of the vascular causes that could cause elevated IOP, such as a chronic cavernous fistula. I don't know if that actually could, but that yeah, that might, might be up there. Or you know, even other to lump into the vascular system um, is neovascular glaucoma. Then next, usually we put something like infectious causes. So, you know, this could be something like a, like a viral uveitis. You know, we haven't gotten to whether there's cell or not yet, but something like that for infectious. Then the T in vitamin C was trauma. So, you know, trauma could be a lot of things. I know you said earlier the patient denied trauma, but there could always be things like hyphema, ghost cell glaucoma, things we covered previously, or even like angle recession glaucoma, even though you didn't really see it on your exam. After that is A, you know, some people call that autoimmune. So like inflammatory conditions. You can remember some of these and combine them with the infectious causes with the mnemonic hot tonopens. So, you know, the H is, um, would be herpes, which we covered in infectious. Then the T could be something like toxo, could be um, w- within that category. The P is something called Posner-Schlossman syndrome, which is just a really rare thing. And then they can have something like sarcoidosis or syphilis. In theory, other inflammatory conditions like like HLA-B27 and other uveitides can cause high eye pressure too, like classically cause lower pressure. But in theory, you know, you, you can't like wipe them off the differential depending on how much inflammation there is in the AC. I mean, if there's none, then there's, then those wouldn't be on the differential. And then next is things like metabolic, which I don't have a really good differential for in this case. You know, idiopathic, it doesn't sound like he did anything. Like, I don't know if a medication that would do this. Neoplastic, I mean, you can think about things like uh, like a melanoma seeding, but usually you see um, some like narrow angles if that's going to cause, or neovascularization if it's a neoplastic cause. Other kind of things that I didn't really capture in this are things like pigment dispersion, you know, other types of open angle glaucoma, lens particle glaucoma, phacolytic glaucoma, things I would be surprised by because you said his vision was good, so I don't expect him to have a dense cataract. And then something like Fuchs, which you could have probably put in the inflammatory category as well. That was way more extensive than I had anticipated. And that was that was great. And I think for me, when I was seeing this patient, I really just wanted to know, is the trabecular meshwork itself dysfunctional? Maybe something like from a prior trauma? Or was there something plugging up the TM that I just couldn't really see? Whether it was like a White, just white blood cells, red blood cells, or even pigment, because those are just some of the things that I know could clog up the trabecular meshwork. And that's essentially what I was thinking. I mean, I was thinking, what is clogging up this sewer? 
Yeah, and I, I like that too because, you know, I, I advocate strongly for the systems-based approach, but how you described it is essentially the anatomic approach. Like, where could the problem be? And you've pretty much identified it to something clogging the trabecular meshwork. You know, the anatomic approach to thinking about what the problem is is very valid and useful as well. So I'm glad that we kind of visited both ways of approaching this differential. Because, to be honest, I still don't know what the heck is going on in this patient because right. I forgot the ultimate differential. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the exam will actually be very helpful for that. So, of course, I had this um, patient in my clinic. I did a slit lamp exam. And really, the anterior exam in the right eye was completely unremarkable. His congen scleral were white and quiet. His cornea was clear. Anterior chamber was deep and quiet. And the iris, there were no nodules. But on the left eye, the affected eye, his congen sclera had some one to two plus injection, and he did have some ciliary flush. Hmm. He also didn't have any, um, he did have some KPs on his cornea. What does that stand for, just in case our listeners haven't heard it? Right, those stand for carotid precipitates. And to describe the KPs a little further, he did have the KPs mostly concentrated along the inferior cornea, along something that we refer to as Arlt's triangle. To describe it even further, they were non-granulomatous, they were small, and they were pretty scattered um, along the inferior cornea or Arlt's triangle. Mm. He also did have a little bit of corneal edema. We actually did a pachymeter in the clinic, and it was 580 in the right and 630 on the left, mm -hmm. uh, but no obvious defolds or any. Um, obvious stromal edema, which explained his pretty good visual acuity. It was 20-25 in this eye. And moving back, I mean, his anterior chamber, he had very few cells. I really? counted about eight cells per high power field and no, no significant flare. His iris, though, had no nodules and his lens was also clear. Just for the listener, why do you focus on nodules in the iris specifically? Yeah, so one of the things that I was thinking about uh, was sarcoidosis. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as you know, sarcoidosis can have various iris nodules. And just a brief overview, the, the three kind of major nodules that you learn about are, are Kepi's nodules, uh, Busaka nodules, and Berlin nodules. But that's maybe a, a talk for a different topic. Yeah, that, that's fine. So i sorry to interrupt you. Is there um, more of the exam that you want to talk about? Yeah, and then I, of course, did a dilated fundus exam. And on his fundus exam, his right eye was pretty much unremarkable. Of note, his cup to disc was about a 0.55, with sharp pink and flat with no disc hemorrhage or disc edema. On the left, he also had a pretty unremarkable dilated fundus exam, except his cup to disc was maybe a 0.65, a little bit more cupped. Mm-hmm. It was sharp pink and flat with no disc hemorrhage and no disc edema, but that was the one part of the exam that was a little bit asymmetric between the right and the left eyes. Interesting. Do you think that difference in cupping could have come from just this episode, which I think you lasted only four days? No, I think it's fairly unlikely that the cupping was just from this episode, but interestingly, he did note that he had several of these episodes just within the past several years that he could remember. And he may have had other episodes that he was unaware of, but it may be that he had these similar episodes of really, really elevated IOP and that over time he did have some, some damage, some glaucomatous damage to his left eye. 
Hmm. So it seems like something that we really have to figure out. Like it's not going to just be a one-off thing. So do you want to just give us a quick summary of all the information you gave us, Michael? Sure. Like what's going on with this guy? Yeah. So uh, essentially he was a 36-year-old man with really no past significant medical history who presented with recurrent episodes of unilateral eye pain. And just of note, he did always say that it affected his left eye. And it was associated with some subjective blurred vision and some light sensitivity. And on exam, his IOP was elevated to 51 on the left eye. He was completely open on conioscopy. And he did have some corneal edema and some anterior chamber cell with a few discrete, fine, scattered white keratic precipitates, especially inferiorly along in, along the Earl's triangle. You know, well, let's give listeners just a moment to think about what the diagnosis could be, because I think, if I remember right, you made the diagnosis just with the information you gave us. Is that right? Essentially, I mean, maybe you did other tests after, but this that, that was basically what you had to work with when you saw the patient. At what time was it? Did this was them? like around 10 p.m. at night. Okay. Um, this was uh, on call. Yeah. So this was basically what, what information I had to work with. Yeah. And of course, a lot of the differentials that you mentioned before did kind of come across my head. But at this point, after I've finished a dilated eye exam, after I've done a, a thorough slit lamp exam, I did have um, a principal leading diagnosis, a working diagnosis in mind. Yeah. And I challenged the reader, to, or the reader, the listener, to try to think about what their leading diagnosis it would be at this point, imagining that you have, it's 10 p.m. and your wife is home waiting for you to get back. Michael's married. Give it a second. Okay, Michael. Oh, here, let me give you a drum roll. Let me give you a drum roll. Okay. What was it? So my leading diagnosis was Posner-Schlossman syndrome. Is it Posner or Posner? I honestly have no idea. Apologies to Dr. Po- Posner? Posner? Yeah. Let's let's just po- let's just pick po- Posner and Schlossman. Fine. For the rest of <laughs> Fine. This, this is your episode. You can oh, you can okay. you're the boss now. Right. Well, we can even man. we can even avoid that altogether and call this glaucomatocyclic crisis. Glaucoma. I can't. Can you say that five times fast for the? For the Actually, episode? let's just keep it. Posner's lost. Okay, cool. Right. <laughs> what the heck is it? Uh, well, this syndrome was first described by two people named Posner and Schlossman. And that was first reported back in 1948. It was a paper that was published looking at nine case reports of patients that all had very similar features. And these patients all basically presented in a very similar fashion to our patients. So they had recurrent unilateral attacks of basically having very blurred vision or eye discomfort. And on exam, they had elevated IOP, often IOP of higher than 35. And Mm -hmm. interestingly, their gonioscopy exam, their angles would always be open. They also had some mild anterior chamber reaction. And some of them had some few fine scattered keratoprecipitates. And uh, these crises or these episodes for these patients usually lasted anywhere from hours to weeks. Mm. And then they would usually self-resolve. And in between these attacks, these patients' IOPs would go back to normal. They'd be completely asymptomatic. And some of them even underwent a provocative testing. And for those of you who don't know, that's when you basically dilate the pupils with some um, eye drops and see if that eye increases the IOP. 
And these patients actually all had negative provocative testing. So, and to clarify, the idea was to rule out intermittent ankle closure, right? To by doing the provocative testing. Correct. Yeah, it was yeah, to yeah, see yeah, if yeah. they could potentially in, induce a ankle closure attack in these patients. Because the, the story actually for a lot of these patients is that they would be fine one moment and then the, the very next, their IOP would go up to 50 and mm-hmm. they would have these blurred vision, light sensitivity, and a, a really dull ache behind their eye, which is all very similar to how acute angle closure presents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So based on this very interesting presentation and, and having seen maybe they said nine case reports of this, they decided to coin a term, Posner-Schlossman syndrome, and that's how we um, came to this term. Yeah, that's awesome. Maybe one day we can make Park-Young syndrome. One yes. day we'll find nine patients who have the same thing. Uh, we, we, we should definitely we'll do start, that. We'll start logging. Got to do that. <laughs> what else What else can you tell us about this syndrome? So uh, the epidemi- epidemiology of this condition is that it usually affects um, younger to middle-aged people, aged is about 20 to 50. It does affect men more than female um, with a 1.5 to 1 greater prevalence for males. Uh, the incidence rate is very rare. Um, it's reported to be 0.4 cases out of 100,000, 100, and the prevalence is 1.9 per 100,000. You know, it's an odd sounding condition. What do you think causes it? Yeah, so there's a few different hypotheses the underlying pathophysiology in this condition. One is the vascular endothelial dysfunction hypothesis, which basically states that there may be some local ischemia to both the iris and the trabecular meshwork, which leads to uh, ischemia of the trabecular meshwork and poor trabecular meshwork function and outflow, which can then lead to a plugging effect and an elevated IOP. Mm. And this was actually... um, reported in a case report, and uh, basically what they did is they did a iris FA, and they showed that there were actually regions of sectoral iris ischemia in a patient who was having an acute episode of what they presumed to be poster Schlossman. Interesting. Are there any other hypotheses? Yeah, there's also the hypothesis that there might just be some inflammatory process that's going on, and you know, some of the Papers that support this is they found that after doing an AC tap in these patients, the prostaglandin levels were elevated compared to normal. There was also a case report of a patient who had a diagnosis of Posner-Schlossman, underwent a trabeculectomy, and they sent a little piece of the trabecular meshwork for pathology, and they found that there were, in fact, mononuclear cells in the trabecular meshwork. So that, that also supports this notion that there might be some underlying inflammatory cause of this disease. Interesting. It sounds like there's a lot of hypotheses because we know so little about the disease. Yeah. I mean, there, there is a, the last kind of main hypothesis is that there is some kind of infectious trigger that causes Posner-Schlossman. And in these models, basically, there's some kind of usually viral etiology that triggers this inflammatory response, which then leads to, of course, the the white blood cells and and plugging of the trabecular meshwork. And one most commonly cited viral cause of Posner-Schlossman is actually cytomegalovirus. Interesting. So in one study looking at 67 eyes that were diagnosed with Posner-Schlossman syndrome, they found that 
a large percentage of them had CMV present in the aqueous humor when they Mm. did the AC tap. Specifically, they found that 52.2% of these eyes carried CMV and uh, was positive for CMV PCR. Interesting. So that's a lot of, I mean, I don't know what the rate is in the general population, but I hope it's not 52% of people with CMV in the eye. So, you know, you've told us a lot, and it it seems, I think, clear from um, your summary of the hypotheses about Posen-Schlossman that we don't, like, know everything about it, obviously. But how how do you make the diagnosis? Like, how did you make the diagnosis? Yeah, there really isn't a very well-established diagnostic criteria for Posen-Schlossman. It is a diagnosis of exclusion. You have to rule out all the other kind of causes of acute elevations in the IOP, but... And essentially, it's a, it's a clinical diagnosis at the end of the day, and it's um, really when you see a patient that fits all of the criteria, which we kind of discussed, a patient that presents with acute recurrent episodes of unilateral blurred vision, pain, and redness, and these episodes last anywhere from days to weeks, and then just kind of self-resolve. Right. Like, the, in, like in the patient you talked about, they had episodes in the past and just went away on its own without any kind of treatment. That's right. Some of the other things that do want to look for before you make this clinical diagnosis though is these patients will often have IOP elevation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with open angles that is out of proportion to the degree of anterior chamber cell and flare. As in they have like not very much so. Right. So their IOP would be really, really high, maybe 40 or 50, but their anterior chamber, they might have traced to one plus cell. And I mean, actually in another study that they looked at the average IOP uh, that these patients presented with was anywhere from 42 to 49. So we're talking about a significant elevation in the IOP. But oftentimes these patients will just have trace AC cell and they may have a few of these fine, scattered, non-granulomatous keratoprecipitates on their cornea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Their visual acuity oftentimes also is very much dependent on the degree of the corneal edema. So you can imagine if you have a persistent IOP that's elevated for a while, they can have corneal edema, which can then really affect their visual acuity. But if they present right away, as soon as they develop this eye pain, without a very prolonged course, they can actually have very good visual acuity, which is what our patient had. And you can imagine that after multiple episodes of these over the years, you can eventually develop optic nerve damage Mm -hmm. and, and develop what looks like a glaucomatous optic nerve. Right. And the patient that you saw had a little bit of increased cupping of the affected eye. Yeah, they did. I mean, I, I mean, I, at first, when I, when I was looking at their optic nerve, I mean, of course, I was looking very carefully because their IOP was so high and I wanted to get a sense of whether this is something that may be chronic. So I do think that I was paying particular attention to the optic nerve and it wasn't a drastic difference, but I do think that the left eye was more cupped out compared to the right. Interesting. Is there anything that you would do or send besides this exam, you know, like exam and clinical impression? Yeah. So to help with the diagnosis and to rule out any other potential differentials, like I said, this is a diagnosis of exclusion. So an AC tap is often warranted because you need to send that sample and potentially check for things like HSV, VZV, and CMV. Mm -hmm. And as Ben mentioned before, you know, there's a lot of other causes of elevated IOP with open angles, with herpetic infections being a large cause of that. Okay. So, okay, you figured it out. 
your lovely wife now gets to see you again, right? Or do you have to do anything about? Well, I mean, yeah, you know, I definitely did not want to send this guy home with a pressure of 50 something. So I started him on some antihypertensive eye drops. And of course, that didn't really have a whole lot of utility or impact. So mm. I did give him some oral Dimox in clinic. Mm-hmm. But of course, that takes a little bit of time. And I knew I was going to need to send an AC sample anyways, um, an aqueous sample anyways, to check for these other viral etiologies like HSV, BZB, and CMV. So I ended up doing an AC tap and, and sending the sample for for exactly those. And that also helped bring down his eye pressure. I also started him on some topical prednisolone acetate. I think I started four times a day and cyclopentolate twice a day. Mm-hmm. And that was really just for the inflammation, kind of treating it as an anterior uveitis. And, you know, I, I know that in some cases of posher Schlossman, there's been some literature that topical gancyclovir, a 2% gel, does help with the recovery in these patients. But at this point, I wasn't quite sure if this patient actually had CMV. Uh, so I wanted to just wait and see what the AC sample would grow before starting that. Yeah, I think a lot of glaucoma and UVI specialists would agree that this is somewhat controversial. So it's not, I, I would be very surprised if that specific point was tested on, you know, on your OCAP or boards. And I think, you know, depending on who you talk to, they may have a, a very different answer because there's, you know, not enough literature to answer that question for us. Right. And importantly, I mean, I, I started the patient on these um, glaucoma drops, prednisolone acetate, and cyclopentolate. And I had the patient follow up closely in our clinic in two days, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, once he came back and, and had a repeat exam, he was actually feeling much better. His IOP was 13 in the left eye. He said that his symptoms had completely resolved. And he did have still some three to four cells per high power field. Um, and the keratoprecipitates were still there, but he, he was feeling much better at that point. Nice. So do you think, I mean, I'd love to give you 100% of the credit for him feeling a lot better, but do you think it might have been just as the natural history of the disease of it resolving on its own? It's very, very possible. I think like we previously mentioned, he had these recurrent episodes in the past. They weren't treated and yet he would always just get better on his own. And so it's very likely that he may have had some of these um, symptoms improve on its own. But I do think that the anterior chamber tap did help with his symptoms because actually as soon as I performed the AC tap, he, he told me that he felt this relief. Yeah, and that I had mean, sure. resol- uh, resolved right away. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like all the symptoms are mainly from the IOP, a little bit from the inflammation. So it makes a lot of sense that your your um, daring work saved the day for him. <laughs> so you know, like long term, what do we know about what happens to patients with Posner Schlossmann's? Yeah, so a lot of these patients actually do end up developing some level of glaucoma in the affected eye. And in one retrospective case series, they looked at 53 eyes in 50 patients who were di- clinically diagnosed with poster schlossman syndrome. And they found that 14 eyes, which was just over 25% of these patients, they did develop some glaucomatous damage. And that was defined mm-hmm. as either damage that was documented on an OCT RNFL 
or on visual fields or both. Mm-hmm. And they found that patients who carried this diagnosis for 10 or more years had a 2.8 times higher risk of developing glaucoma compared to patients who had this diagnosed for less than 10 years. Interesting. So they can, you know, even though it's a transient thing, they can still develop glaucoma, which I think is important. That these are people we probably should be following. Right. And actually, in this same case series, they found that 9 out of 53 eyes actually had to undergo trabeculectomy oh, wow. with mitomycin C or 5-FU. So that just goes to show that, you know, this is not a benign disease. And, and these patients do require a close follow-up because they may not even know that how many episodes they're having. And over the course of years, they might actually develop quite severe glaucoma in their affected eye. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and that's all we have for... Oh, wait, hold on. There's something... When you were describing this, it sounded a lot like another inflammatory, like uveitic type of glaucoma. And I've always had a problem getting these two straight. So, you know, I'm talking about Fuchs uh, heterochromic iridocyclitis. You know, I, I think when when I read about it, they seem like really similar. Do, do you, Can you help me figure out how to differentiate them? Yeah. And I think that's something that I also had a lot of difficulty differentiating when I was studying for the OCAPs. But, you know, I think when I read into it in greater detail, the single greatest thing that helped me differentiate Posner-Schlossman from Fuchs is simply that uh, Posner-Schlossman is characterized by acute episodes or attacks. And these patients have these episodes where their IOP spikes up to 50 or 40, and then they go back to being normal, and then they have another ep- acute episode. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's basically these discrete episodes or attacks that are separated by periods of complete normal eye pressures. Whereas in Fuchs heterochromic erosiclitis, it's a chronic condition where it's characterized by elevated IOPs and a lot of the other similar features like low-grade inflammation, usually it's unilateral, it's thought to be some kind of inflammatory or infectious etiology. But the idea is that their IOPs are chronically elevated, mm. perhaps not up to 40s, but they're elevated beyond normal. And it's a chronic condition that's not really um, characterized by recurrent acute episodes. And actually, for that reason, a few patients with Fuchs heterochromic erosiclitis oftentimes don't present until very late in their disease process after they've developed a lot of glaucomatous optic nerve damage. Whereas in Posner-Slossman patients, they present very differently. They say, doc, I have really bad eye pain. This is not usual. What do I do? Okay, that actually really helps. I think just that time course and um, those those other differences that, that you mentioned. Is there anything else? on? There's something on exam, I think, that helps differentiate the two, isn't there? Yeah. So as the name suggests, Fuchs heterochromic erosiclitis. Oftentimes, these patients will have some heterochromia, once again, because this is a, a chronic process. And they also have this interesting sign where if you do cataract surgery on them, as soon as you make the parallel incision, they can develop some bleeding from these fine vessels over their iris that cross the TM. And um, there's actually a name for that. Do you, do you remember what that's called, Ben? Amsler sign. Nice. <laughs> I nailed it. Okay, awesome. 
Michael, thank you for presenting that case and helping us review, you know, not only the differential for open angle high eye pressures, but positive sloshman in so much detail and helping us differentiate from Fuchs heterochromic iridocyclitis. That's all we have for this week. If you like to be heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number four. If you'd like to support the podcast, it's really helpful if you go to the podcast webpage on iTunes where you find your podcast and leave a rating or review. We hope everyone out there is safe with everything that's going on in the country, and um, we'll see you next week with another episode. Thanks. Bye. Bye.